Good morning again. If you will, turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 21. Our sermon text for this morning is Acts 21, verses 1 through 26. Acts 21, 1 through 26. Before we read that, let's pray together. Our Father, we, we do long to see the cross lifted up. We long to delight in the work of Jesus more fully. We long to find our joy in your love displayed there. Uh, we long to rest in your mercy and compassion and grace, knowing that our sins are forgiven, knowing that you are at work for the good of your children, knowing that you will work all things out on the last day. Father, we pray that as we come to you and your word now, we pray that you would open our eyes and our hearts and our minds, uh, that we would see with our eyes and hear with our ears and understand with our hearts, that we would believe what you have written in the scriptures and that we would, that we would rest in the Savior. Pour out your spirit to that end, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts 21, uh, beginning with verse 1. And when we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey. And they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship and they returned home. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemais, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own hands and feet and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Nason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God, and they said to him, 
You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law, and they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men, and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. What lies between pig-headedness and compromise? This week, Thomas and I watched uh, a movie, Hacksaw Ridge, and uh, it's a war movie about a man named Desmond Doss. He enlisted in World War II, but refused to touch, uh, not to mention carry or fire, a gun. And at one point, Desmond is in jail, and as, as a result of disobeying direct orders by a commanding officer, and his wife-to-be, Dorothy, comes to him and says, why can't you just pick up the stupid gun and wave it around? You don't have to use it, just meet them halfway. Of course, Desmond says, I can't do that. She says, yes, you can. It's just pride. Pride and stubbornness. Don't confuse your will with the Lord's. The movie doesn't really get into whether her words were true. What uh, Was Desmond simply pig-headed or was this God's will? course it's not always easy to see the difference people stand uh, for what they know is right but for all kinds of reasons it, it could be right and they could be proud or they could be a, a very humble person confused about what is right and I bring that up because one of my favorite pastors believes that Paul in our passage this morning was sinning he believes that Paul was being pig-headed and at the same time, compromising the gospel. You see, everywhere Paul went, the Holy Spirit warned him about what would happen in Jerusalem, but Paul still went. When he got there, the argument goes, Paul was tempted to compromise with the Jewish believers in Jerusalem by performing a sacrifice in the temple, when Paul knew that Jesus had fulfilled the whole sacrificial system. Paul was a pig-headed compromiser. Now, to be fair, uh, this pastor is actually pretty gracious to Paul. Uh, he applauds Paul's motives, but in the end says Paul's actions are problematic. And it's a little bit funny to me because pigheadedness and compromise seem to be on two different ends of the spectrum. On the one end, I refuse to give in. I will not listen. I'll stick by my principles no matter what. But on the other hand, you have giving in. Uh, being willing to go against your principles for the sake of peace or fitting in or some such thing. 
it may not be a surprise to you, I don't think Paul was either being pig-headed or compromising. Uh, I think he was actually right where he needed to be. In fact, I think Paul is modeling for us what it looks like to follow Jesus. So this morning, that's what we're going to look at. What, what does it look like to follow Jesus? And uh, if you turn on the back of your bulletin, if you want to follow along, there's an outline there. Three points. What does it look like? Faithful resolve, loving contextualization, and the narrow way of grace. First, faithful resolve. Have you ever kept arguing even after you realized you were wrong? Right? Have you ever continued a course of action despite the fact that every evidence that it was foolish or bound for failure? And yet you just you kept going anyway. Have you ever refused to take the advice of others because you knew what the best course of action was already? You didn't need their advice. Uh, Dictionary.com describes pig-headedness or defines pig-headedness as stubbornly, stu- uh, stupidly obstinate or stubborn. Uh, another dictionary says it's willfully or perversely unyielding. And we've all been there. God says of Israel in Isaiah 48, uh, you are obstinate and your neck is an iron sinew and your forehead brass. In fact, years earlier, God had already said to Moses back in the book of Exodus, I have seen this people and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. All of these images amount to the same thing, right? An unwillingness to yield when yielding is called for, a stubborn pride. It's the the same meaning when God talks about our hard hearts or when Jesus uh, talks about the seed that fell along the path. Like the ground was too hard, too unyielding, too inflexible to receive the seed. In essence, pig-headedness, right, or hard-heartedness is an unwillingness to receive the word of God or the wisdom of God, whether through his word directly or indirectly through his people. And this is the accusation that is laid against Paul by some about his actions here in our passage. The Spirit warned Paul about what was going to happen in Jerusalem, but Paul refused to listen. It's just stubbornness. Now let me remind you where we are in the book of Acts, in this story, right? Acts chapter 1, Jesus had sent out the apostles to go to the ends of the earth with the gospel, and that's exactly what has happened. First Jerusalem, then Judea and Samaria, then out past Syria into modern-day Turkey and Greece. The gospel has been spreading like wildfire throughout the Roman world. Paul himself was sent out from Antioch and has completed three missionary journeys over the course of many years. But those journeys have now come to an end. And in Acts 19, 21, we read, Now after these events, Paul resolved in the Spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. Paul resolved in the spirit to set a course for Jerusalem and ultimately Rome. And yet Paul knows that there will be trouble. In Acts chapter 20, Paul had said, and now behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. 
In our text this morning, in chapter 21, uh, verses 1 through 16, Paul continues his journey. He lands at Tyre, and there the disciples, in verse 4, were told, through the Spirit, were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. But Paul continues on his journey. Eventually, he arrives at Caesarea. He stays with Philip. While there, the prophet Agabus comes, takes Paul's belt, binds his own hands and feet, and says, Thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Now, when everybody heard this at the time, Luke included, verse 12 tells us, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Paul was brokenhearted by their pleas for his safety, but he says, nevertheless, he himself is ready to die for the name of Jesus. And the disciples all give up or, or, or give in and uh, saying in verse 14, let the will of the Lord be done. Well, what do you think? Is Paul just being pigheaded, Or is he resolving to walk by faith? And how do you know the difference? I, I want us to notice four things, at least in our passage, uh, verses 1 through 16, two things that are, are not signs of pigheadedness, though you might confuse them as such, and two things which are signs of faithful resolve. Uh, the, the first thing that's important to notice is that facing trouble is not a sign of pride. Now, of course, if that were the case, if facing self trouble were a sign of pride, the church would never have existed because Jesus would have never gone to the cross. But uh, I want you to notice specifically in our text this morning what is said. Notice Agabus. What does Agabus say in verse 11? He does not say, Paul ought not go to Jerusalem. It's not what Agabus says. He only tells us what will happen when Paul goes. Agabus prophesies trouble for Paul. That doesn't mean that Paul is to turn the other way. Of course, Paul already knew trouble was coming. He said as much back in chapter 20. The Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city. The NIV uses the word warn in that passage. Acts 20, 23 in the NIV says, I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. Some people take that language of warning as the Holy Spirit's way of saying, don't go. But even if that was the best translation, that doesn't mean the Holy Spirit is trying to stop Paul from going to Jerusalem. I mean, just imagine a pastor preaching at a wedding, warning a new couple about the trials to come in marriage. He's not encouraging them to run from the altar, right? But he is encouraging them to be ready for what is to come. The testimony of the Spirit in Acts 20, the, the prophetic symbolism of Agabus in Acts 21, tell Paul what will happen. But they in no way imply that Paul should therefore change course. The Holy Spirit is preparing Paul for the troubles that are to come. And, and guess what, friends? The Christian life is full of troubles. In the Christian life, you will have trouble. That doesn't mean you should give up. I tell you that not to discourage you from following Jesus, but precisely the opposite, right? To encourage you to be ready when trouble comes so that you will not be discouraged when it does. And it will come, right? In the world, you will have trouble, Jesus says. Take heart, 
though, Jesus has overcome the world. See, facing trouble is not a sign of pride. In fact, it could be a sign of faith in the resurrection power of Jesus. So facing trouble is not a sign of pride. Neither is refusing to give in to the pleas of your friends. And Paul's friends did plead. Luke and others with him urged Paul not to go to Jerusalem, verse 12. They didn't want their friend, whom they loved, to suffer, to be arrested, to be tried, and who knows what else. In verse 4, the language is even stronger of the disciples of Tyre, we're told, through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Now, this gets a little bit tricky, doesn't it? Because 1921, chapter 19, verse 21, says that Paul resolved in the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. Chapter 20, verse 22, Paul says he's going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit. And now, in, 19, in, uh, in, in chapter 21, we're told, through the Spirit, the disciples of Tyre told Paul not to go. It seems a little bit like the Holy Spirit is contradicting himself. I think what we're meant to understand here is what Luke tells us in shorthand in verse 4. He illustrates more fully in verses 11 to 13. The Spirit did indeed allow certain prophets entire to understand what would come of Paul. But they themselves drew the conclusion that Paul was not to go. Unless we want to charge the, the Spirit with being double-minded, we must say right, that their urging was not a direct command of the Spirit, which is not to say that their prophecy wasn't. Right? See, here's the point. The urging of Paul's friends, even as it was based on their Spirit-given knowledge of the future, was nevertheless not the path that Paul was to take. Or to put that positively, uh, that is, Paul was to continue on his journey despite the urging of his friends. Sometimes people's care for us, well-meaning as it is, actually blinds them to God's will for us. Um, this was certainly true for Jesus. Right? You remember back in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus began to show his disciples uh, that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And Jesus turns and says to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Now, the urging of Paul's friends uh, was not quite satanic temptation, but it was nevertheless misguided. Paul had resolved in the Spirit to go to Jerusalem, and the Spirit constrained him to that end. Paul had to go. And so these first two things, right, are, are not necessarily signs of pride, right? A willingness to face trouble is not necessarily a sign of pride. Or refusing to give in to the pleas of your friends is not necessarily a sign of pride either. Uh, don't get me wrong, both could be. We need to check ourselves, but neither one necessarily is. And so let's look at two things in the text that, sh that are signs of faithful resolve, uh, first is, is submission to God's will, right? That's a good sign of faithful resolve. Uh, the Spirit had, had guided Paul, and Paul was willing to follow no matter what. Right? He felt constrained by the Spirit. He was ready to be imprisoned, even die for the name of Jesus. Luke tells us in verse 14, since Paul could not be persuaded, we, that is Luke and his fellow disciples, ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. 
See, that, that's what Paul cared about, isn't it? Paul cared about the will of the Lord being done. Back in Acts 20, when he talks about the suffering that he's facing, he says, I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. See, Paul's sole concern was to finish the charge that he received from Jesus. He wasn't concerned about trouble. He wasn't concerned about imprisonment. He wasn't even concerned about death. He just wanted to obey Jesus. In fact, while in prison, later in life, Paul would write in Philippians 1.20, it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. See, that's what Paul wanted. Paul wanted to honor Christ, whether by life or by death, it didn't matter. It's not the resolve of a hard-hearted man full of pride, but the resolve of one ready to follow Jesus. Finally, the other sign of Paul's faithful resolve is his willingness to walk in the footsteps of Jesus. That's what he's doing here. Uh, Like the Spirit's pronouncements about Paul, Jesus too had suffered. Like Agabus prophesied, Jesus too was handed over by the Jews to the Gentiles. As with Paul, Jesus' friends tried to discourage him from the cross. And yet, as with Paul, Jesus had a holy resignation. He prayed to the Father, not my will, but yours be done. See, Paul was simply walking in the footsteps of Jesus. He is taking up his cross and following Jesus. This isn't pigheadedness or pride. Uh, Paul knew the Spirit had constrained him. Paul was not unwilling to listen to God's word. To the contrary, he was ready to follow the Spirit. Paul had given his life to studying and teaching Jesus from the Scriptures. That is what guided him. And of course, that's the best guard against pride. Daily submitting to Scripture. See, not just just reading it, but obeying it. Reading and, and disobeying, of course, actually hardens our hearts. And so we need to read and obey. Read and follow. And sure, be willing to listen to the encouragement of other believers, absolutely. But test that by Scripture. And then live in accordance with Scripture. Uh, of course, right, if you, if you are living in accordance with Scripture, don't bend. Right? Don't give in. Uh, a few years back, I was in the middle of a, a, a grueling conflict, and a friend sent me a card that said, Stubbornness is a virtue when you're right. It was his way of encouraging me not to give up. This is what we need, to to humble ourselves before the Word of God and then stubbornly obey it with all our strength, following in the footsteps of Jesus. So Paul was not pig-headed, wasn't being proud. He was seeking to live in obedience to the, the will of the Spirit for his life and follow in the footsteps of his Lord. So much for Paul's journey to Jerusalem. What about when he got there? And that brings us to our second point about loving contextualization. You know, the gospel and culture is a perennial source of confusion. That is the relationship between the two. Does being a Christian mean fitting in or standing out? Does it mean conforming to culture or critiquing it? The answer, of course, is yes. 
One side of this debate misses the fact that every Christian, every church, must be a part of some culture. The early Christians were a part of Jewish and Roman culture. They couldn't not be. The other side of this debate misses the fact that because we live in a fallen world, culture itself is corrupted by sin. And so while we fit in in some ways, we're called to stand out in others. You see, the same people who accuse Paul of pigheadedness accuse Paul of compromising the gospel. He's going too far, they say. They don't mean that in the good sense of the word compromise, right? I mean, they, they, they don't mean when two people come to a mutually agreeable decision. They mean it in the bad sense of compromise, of going against one's own principles, adjusting the gospel to make it palatable, to make it easier for people to believe. When Paul and, and his crew come to Jerusalem, they go to visit James and the elders. Uh, just as a side note, notice the apostles have dropped out of the picture at this point. The elders are now uh, fully shepherding the post-apostolic church, even in Jerusalem, as we've talked about. Uh, Paul shares with them, James and the elders, all that God had done through him among the Gentiles, and they hear it and they rejoice. Right? They, they, are, they are excited about what God is doing among the nations. But there was a problem. You see, thousands of Jews in Jerusalem had converted to Christianity. And many of those Jews were zealous for the law. It was their God-given heritage, after all. But someone had been spreading rumors that Paul encouraged Jews to forsake Moses and telling them to neglect circumcision and other Jewish customs. It's a bit more complicated than this, right? But that's a little like telling Americans to stop celebrating the 4th of July or, or telling Italians to stop eating pasta or something like that, right? It's part of our heritage, part of our roots. The elders in Jerusalem clearly believe the rumors are false. And so they ask Paul to demonstrate his loyalty to the law by participating in, in a ritual, a purification ritual in the temple. And Paul agrees. What do you think? Is Paul compromising to avoid conflict? Is he obscuring the gospel by participating in this Jewish ritual? Is this a change in Paul's stance toward the law? I mean, didn't Paul encourage people to neglect circumcision and disobey Moses? Isn't that what Galatians is all about? Actually, no. Uh, we, we do not see Paul encouraging Jewish people to neglect the law of Moses. What do we actually see? First, Paul himself, at times, we've seen in the book of Acts, kept ceremonial portions of the Mosaic law. I'll give you three examples, right? In Acts chapter 18, verse 18, Paul cuts his hair because he's under a vow. Apparently something similar to a, a Nazarite vow of Numbers chapter 6. Right? Paul is keeping a vow according to the Old Testament law. In Acts 20, verse 6, Paul appears to celebrate the Passover in uh, Philippi. He's celebrating the Passover. In Acts 20, verse 16, we're told Paul wants to get to Jerusalem for the day of Pentecost, which was already celebrated right, in the Old Testament. We, we think of Pentecost as, rightly so, Acts chapter 2, but this was already a celebration uh, found in the Old Testament. 
And so in each of these things, there is this apparent willingness to follow the traditions of Moses at times. Why would that be? Why would Paul be so willing to do that? Well, notice second, outside of the book of Acts, what does Paul actually say about circumcision and following with that the whole law of Moses? Well, Galatians chapter 5, verse 6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Galatians 6, verse 15. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 19. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. See, what, what is Paul's stance towards circumcision? Does Paul encourage Jews to neglect circumcision? Not at all. What he says is, and, and he's absolutely clear on this, he says circumcision and uncircumcision, either way, do not affect one's relationship to God. It doesn't matter if you're circumcised or uncircumcised. It's irrelevant in terms of your relationship to God. Circumcision is of no significance. Now, some of Paul's Jewish contemporaries might not have liked that, but this is not the same thing as encouraging Jews to forsake Moses. It's not. And third, notice in our text, the elders themselves emphasize in verse 25 what we already know from chapter 15. They say that the Jerusalem church had decided that the Gentiles were free from the law of Moses, but only asked them that they keep a few specific things in mind. What's the point, right? They agree, right, that the elders and James agree with Paul that the Gentiles do not need to keep the law. That's not the issue here. The issue is whether Paul is telling the Jews to forsake the law, their heritage, their culture. So on the one hand, Gentiles don't have to become Jewish to be Christians, but was Paul commanding Jews to become Gentiles? That was the issue. Uh, Paul refused to Judaize the Gentiles, but was he Gentilizing the Jews? And this brings us to a fourth thing that, to, to mention, Paul's guiding principle for ministry among different peoples. We read it earlier in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Paul says this, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. See, Paul's guiding principle was to become like people, we would say culturally, for the sake of the gospel. If circumcision and uncircumcision are nothing, then be circumcised or not. It doesn't matter as long as you realize what you're doing. That's why on the one hand, Paul, uh, Paul refused to allow Titus to be circumcised, a Gentile, but he had Timothy circumcised because he was half Jewish. For Paul, it was not a matter of circumcision and uncircumcision didn't make a difference. It was a matter of expedience for him, whether you were circumcised or not. And if it's a matter of reaching people for the gospel, do whatever is most likely to tear down unnecessary barriers to people hearing about Christ. 
Right? We, we must not compromise the gospel. We, we cannot change the message. We cannot water down sin. But things indifferent, things cultural that are neither here nor there, of these things, Paul says in 1 Corinthians again, chapter 10, let no one seek his own good but the good of his neighbor. Try to please everyone and everything, not seeking your own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved. Now, sometimes people call this contextualization, uh, which I think is, is just a, a big word to mean uh, the context-specific embodiment of gospel principles. But one word is a little easier, maybe. Maybe. Sometimes people call this incarnational ministry because as Jesus became like us to save us, so we become like others. In Paul's language, of course, in 1 Corinthians 9, that we might save them. Other people don't like the language of incarnational ministry uh, because of the uniqueness of the incarnation, right? They want to protect the idea that the incarnation of Jesus was unique. There's only one incarnation, they would say. And um, that's true, but there's also only one cross, too. And there's something unique about the cross of Jesus, but we are called to take up our cross and follow him. Right? The, the two things are not the same, but they are analogous. And so I think the principle of incarnational ministry is sound. Um, as the Father sent Jesus, right, so Jesus sent the apostles. We follow Paul as Paul follows Christ, as Paul himself says. Just as we take up our cross and follow Jesus, so we too take the form of a servant. I, I notice that's what Paul calls this in 1 Corinthians 9, becoming like others, taking the form of a servant. And of course, that's what Paul calls the incarnation in Philippians chapter 2. Jesus took the form of a servant. It's not, of course, that, that the word incarnation or incarnational ministry is that important. The point is we become like others to serve them that they might hear the gospel, right? We, we remove every barrier, every obstacle possible. Now, if you're not sure, right, if, is this a barrier or an obstacle that can be removed, um, you can ask some questions, right? Is this something that is ultimately unimportant? Like circumcision, does it, does it not actually have spiritual significance? Am I or others seeking to impose this on other people? Paul sees that as a problem, once you start imposing unimportant things on others. Or is this just one expression of being human in this time and this place? Is my goal to serve and to become like others so that I have an opportunity to share the gospel without compromise? That's what Paul was seeking to do, right? Not compromise the gospel, but show the Jews that Paul was perfectly content for Jews to be Jewish in the way they follow Jesus. Jews could be Jews, Gentiles could be Gentiles. Both without com compromise could follow Jesus. Which brings us to our third point, the narrow way of grace. Grace is always a narrow way. Jesus says as much. Uh, it's easy to be pig-headed and dig in our heels and insist on your own way no matter what. It's also easy to give into the crowds and go with the flow. It's easy to compromise with aspects of the culture that have been corrupted by sin in the name of ministry. It's also easy to idolize one's own culture in the name of holiness. See, we want to insist on our own way because we are enamored often with our own will and we want to fit in and we want things to be easy because we are enamored with our own comfort. 
And so our way and our comfort tend to rule our hearts, and which is ruling in any given moment will determine whether we are pig-headed or compromising. See, pig-headedness and compromise are easy because they both go with our natural bent toward self, toward our will and our comfort. It's much harder, on the other hand, to humbly listen to God's word and step into another's world with a willingness to do whatever is necessary to serve them and the gospel. That is hard, right? That takes self-denial and therefore suffering. There are times when I must follow God's word when it goes against my will, when it goes against my way. And there are times when I must willingly accept the loss of my cultural preferences for the sake of another. That is hard. But that is the way of the cross, right? Self-denial is always the way of the cross. That's what Jesus did, right? He did not insist on his own way or his own comfort, but in obedience to his Father, he stepped into our skin, he became a servant, he suffered for our sake, that we might have life and joy with the Father. Jesus did not insist on his own way or comfort so that we might be saved. Jesus did not insist on his own comfort that we might experience pleasures at the Father's right hand forevermore. Jesus did not insist on his own way that we might become who we were truly meant to be. That's actually what Jesus meant when he said, if anyone saves his life, he will lose it. But if anyone loses his life for Christ's sake, then he will find it. Then we become who we are really meant to be. See, self-denial and self-sacrifice for Jesus' sake, ironically, are the path to self-fulfillment and joy and salvation. Jesus did not insist on his own way or comfort that we might be saved. And now Paul calls us to follow him as he follows Christ, to not insist on our own way or our own comfort, but to become servants that by any means we too might save some. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray that you would teach us what this means. Uh, Teach us what it looks like to take up our cross and follow Jesus. Teach us what it looks like to enter into another's world, to serve them, that they might hear of, of your grace, that they might be saved. Teach us, lead us, guide us by your Spirit, and we pray for your blessing as we seek to move out and love others uh, for Jesus' sake. Pour out your Spirit to that end that, that, that you would draw people to yourself. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.